not gonna lie, um, Golden Hour's hitting both of us right now, and we look amazing. No, this is just my skin. Well, okay, well, good for <laughs> fucking you, because this is this is Golden Hour hitting me in the face, and I'm like, oh my god, hi. Um, no, I'm actually breaking out really bad, but you know what? It comes. It happens. It sucks. But, Tyler, I have a question for you. I need your help with something, because uh, I'm a little- okay. I'm a little bit confused. I'm actually very confused and actually very pissed off. Listeners who have listened to our past episodes, I brought this up, I, I don't know, I think more than once. There are more bones outside. Twice this week, <laughs> Charlie has found bones. One looked like like a chicken leg. The other looked like, I don't know, something from like beef or something, like a large vertebrae. Not a vertebrae, but like something... I- I just need I just need you to know that the way you phrased that there are more bones outside <laughs> made it sound like you're next to like I'm a flooding cemetery and they just keep flowing by. I mean, it's either that or my neighbor is a serial killer and Charlie just keeps finding the bones and they're not from chicken and cow. They're from Steve and John. Well, I mean, honestly, the likely scenarios are you have a serial killer who lives in your apartment complex, and they just discard a couple pieces of bone at a time on the sidewalk. Or <laughs> you have some asshole who's sitting up in their apartment, probably sitting on the windowsill looking out the window because, you know, they're the protagonist of their own story and they think they're being deep and meaningful. And they're eating their KFC bucket and just, what, tossing the bones out the window? Who does that? So it has to be the serial killer. I mean, that's what I'm thinking, because who would be so disrespectful and dumb to throw chicken bones all over the fucking sidewalk where everyone walks their dog? Side note, I said it before, I'll say it again. Bird bones kill dogs. They're like hollow. But So if you don't know this, now you know, dogs cannot... I'm very passionate about this, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> dogs can't chew bird bones. They're hollow they splinter and they can stab them in their esophagus and in their internal stomach and <laughs> as opposed to their external stomach. Yeah. I was about to say internal organs, which is true, but you can't do that. Like dogs cannot chew hollow bones the way they can chew like a rib bone or something. And no, I mean, it's like eating a light bulb. Like it's hollow and shatters. So I agree. It's the serial killer. Only explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, I guess lock your door. I, I do. I will. Always. And yeah, it sounds like maybe I'll, I'll I'll find out and I'll cover the case here in a year. Okay. Well, that works. Um, Hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I'm and living I- amongst the serial killer. Yeah. And I don't I don't think I, I have a serial killer in my apartment complex. Um, And if I do, they're a lot better at hiding it than uh, Brittany's serial killer. I love how you were just like, they're just leaving bones on the sidewalk. And I'm like, I guess so. <laughs> <Thank God. laughs> well, Tyler, after today's episode, we are recording a murder mini. And if you know what those are, then obviously you've checked out our Patreon. If you don't know what they are, we actually have additional content. And there are, the this will be like 46 additional episodes that you can check out and listen to on our Patreon. So just hop on over there. It's where a lot of you listeners support us, keep us going. It's really, really helpful. And we've just got a fun conversation and some extra content. So go check it out. 
Boom. Also, while you're checking out Patreon, make sure you have subscribed to us on uh, whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. If it's Apple Podcasts, if it's Spotify, Pandora, make sure to hit that subscribe button or whatever it's called on that platform so that you automatically get our episodes every time we release a new one, which is every Tuesday. Yes. So, Tyler... You were a loser last weekend. Oh, I mean, wow. You're, I mean, it wasn't just last weekend. I mean, oh no. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So that's how we're starting this episode. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So your case was not as intense last week as mine was. So it meant that you had to pick the topic. And I'm scared because you haven't picked the topic in a while. Um, I haven't, and at the end of the very last episode, I gave a little little hint, because I had one in mind. And looking back now, I'm like, God, I'm stupid after a bottle of wine. But, regardless, uh, this topic, I have been watching a lot of cooking videos lately and for my entire life. If I could buy, like, one channel of cable, and that's it, and it'd be, like, a dollar, I, I would buy Food Network, and that's it. Because you really I, would. I love cooking. It's amazing. And so I was like, well, we've already done cannibals, so we're not we're not going to go that route, but why not do chef murders? So you're essentially wanting to ruin the thing that you love so dearly, cooking. Yeah, I mean, I just figure why not take like one of the few joys I have and just destroy it. You can do that with murder. Yeah, no, you can. So, uh, yeah, that is our topic. I'm I'm excited. My case is not what I expected when I first found it. I get that. I can see it. Because I don't know about you, but there are definitely times when we get a topic and I'll like have a case in mind. Like not a specific one, but some kind of story in my mind. Right. And for this one, I was like, ooh, I'm going to see if I can find a case of, like, a sous chef who, like, was working at restaurants and murdered the chef above them to, like, move up, and it's a thing. I don't know if that's ever happened, or is a thing, because I couldn't find it, Um, (laughs) but I found this case and was like, oh, damn, oh, my God. So, you know, not what I was expecting. Same with mine, I will say that. But before we hop into our cases, let's pour ourselves some wine. Yeah, what goes better with uh, chefs than a a wine pairing? This is our wine pairing for the chef murders. So, Tyler, what are you pairing with tonight's episode? So the wine I'm pairing with today's episode is uh, the Castellana Trebbiano di Aburso, and it's obviously Italian. And I don't actually know what year it is. My best guess is 2018, but it doesn't say it anywhere on the label. And on the back, there's like a um, like a printed thing. Almost like, like a bottle number shipping something or other. Yeah, and that has 2018 on it. But I don't know if that's saying 2018, like when the vintage is from or like when that's when it was shipped. I assume now that I say that, though, it'd have to be the vintage, because I don't think it's been sitting on the store <laughs> shelf for two years. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I bet it's a 2018. I probably. But this wine, it is a 100% Trebbiano grapes, which I have never had before. I don't think I have either. It sounds familiar, but I could not tell you about a single wine I've had. Me neither, which is really confusing, because it's apparently... Italy's most popular white varietal is the Trebbiano. 
Yeah, but here's the thing. How often do we drink Italian white wines that aren't Pinot Grigio? Mmm, that's a good point. Okay. And we don't even really drink those. So it's, I mean, really, when you think about Italian white wine, what is it? I guess it's this. Prosecco and this, yeah. (laughs) That's a sparkling. That is Prosecco. I mean, yeah, it's white, but no, I know what you mean. But yeah, apparently Trebbiano is Italy's most popular white. This wine is a medium-bodied white wine. It has a very rich mouthfeel and flavors of like pineapple and flowers. Not floral, flowers. So <laughs> drinking a mouthful of chrysanthemum. Yum. And apparently, according to the bottle, nothing makes a better accompaniment to lighter fare, such as salads and poultry. And it's the perfect choice for that everyday cool glass of wine. Which, honestly, for me personally, I hope I really like it. Because as far as, like, white wines go, I really like Sauvignon Blancs, but they're very light. Mm -hmm. And as far as medium or heavier bodied whites go... I'm not a big fan of any I've found yet. I mean, I'll drink a Pinot Grigio, I'll drink an Unoak Chardonnay, but eh. So if I could find something that kind of hits that medium-bodied white, but is something I enjoy, hey. There you go. Um, plus, this bottle was like 7 or $8 from Total Wine, so super affordable if it's good. I'm just, I'm going to open it up. It looks like it has that, like, D-O-C-G or D-O-C D-O-C on it. Which one is it? Yeah, it has the little D-O-C blue label, which is like, it's actually from Italy. Yes, that's what that always tells me. I'm like, oh, good, it's really Italian. <laughs> uh-huh. That was quite loud. Yeah, um, which is surprising. It's one of those, like, plastic corks, like the not real cork material. Slid out pretty easily, though. What does it smell like? Very floral, like... Like a bouquet of flowers? Like grandma's perfume. Oh. Oh. Oh, it's yellow. Yeah, it's very straw-colored. Very. I don't know what I was anticipating, but... Wait, what was that? He just put his nose in his glass and... Now it smells very different. Honestly, does not smell far off from, like, a French Sauvignon Blanc, so... Interesting. Ooh, that sounds good. I'm excited okay. for you to try this. Me too. So, uh, Brittany, tell me what uh, what you're drinking today. I am drinking the 2018 Bougrier Famille Chardonnay from the Loire Valley in France. So, it's a French Chardonnay. And Bougrier is said to be the best of Loire since 1855. And Noel Bougrier is the fifth generation in a family from the Loire Valley. And they're a family of wine merchants. And they work with the region's best growers to create excellent examples of classic Loire wines, including Vouvray, which Vouvray is one that I don't think we've done on the podcast. Mm -mm. I have had one. It is a lot sweeter. Um, I would call it a semi-sweet white wine. So if you are more interested in that type of wine, a Vouvray, I think you would love it. And they also have a rosé as well. 
So this Chardonnay in particular, it's delicious, which is good. I'm glad they didn't say it was not good. It's It's I. (laughs) It's very well balanced, and it's a blend of old and new world styles, which is something that's always very interesting to me when old world wineries are willing to like adapt and and, um, accept new world tradition. So that's what they did. It's full bodied, and it pairs very well with a variety of dishes. So obviously, it's one of those heftier white wines that number one we say it all the time but drink whatever wine you want with whatever you're eating but it obviously is going to work really well with everything from like a chicken salad all the way to a hamburger damn i just want some grilled scallops now you know i'm not a big scallops person it's the texture I am only a fan of them when they're like wood grilled so they have more of a bite to them and they're not fish marshmallows That's exactly what they make me think of, which is why it's so (laughs) gross. (laughs) Yeah. I also want, like, two, and I'm good. Marshmallows of the sea. Oh, God. (laughs) Chicken of the sea's new offshoot. Gross. I did read some reviews. I channeled you when I did my research on this. And they said that this Chardonnay is not too acidic and it's not too buttery. It has a really nice finish and it's not super dry. So it is also a screw top. And here we go. Okay. Well, mine wasn't a screw top. So you said also. No, I meant like just like also in addition to the fact that it's not not dry. It's also a screw top. (laughs) I'm following. Smells like Chardonnay. Oh. See how light that is? I know. I'm surprised you're drinking a Chardonnay, but mine is a darker yellow than yours. This is more of your... What would you say that color is? It's like very pale. It's not really yellow. It's It's like a light gold. It's a light gold. It's like champagne color. Yeah. You definitely smell that melon pear for sure vanilla it's your classic chardonnay so you've got like apple pear vanilla a little bit of a hint of maybe a little bit of citrus and Mm. with that vanilla it makes me think it's going to be a little bit creamy so we'll see okay (laughs) well um with that with your creamy ass wine which i just i think one of the reasons i hate the word creamy with wine is have you seen those what look like wine milkshakes that you can get at the store. It's like passion fruit wine or like that looks like the texture and like color density of like Pepto-Bismol. That's vile. I know. Well, you said creamy, so. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) Your face is interesting. This is unlike any wine I've ever tasted before. Oh my god. Okay, I love that. You know how long it's been since we've had a wine that like is super different? Mhm. So what are you what are you thinking? What are you tasting? Tell me about it. It's very floral, but not in a like powdery kind of way, in like a um powdery. Oh, well, like you know, like makeup powder. Yeah. And well, you know how when you like I don't know. That's just the image in my mind of like the I don't know, very soft, florally, like, perfumey scents. Is it's, like, almost powdery. It's so intense. Like, baby's breath kind of shit. Yeah. This one is flowery, more like, um, like an elderflower type flavor, where it leans 
it is floral, but leans almost fruity. Yeah. And with the pineapple, it's very interesting. Imagine like, God, the, the only way I can think to describe it is similar to a Pinot Grigio with all of the acid and sharpness taken out and more of a floral, smooth quality put in. It's not sweet. When I, like, brought it to my face to drink it, it had the aroma that it was about to be a sweet wine, and I was like, fuck. (laughs) No. There's, like, zero acid, which is really weird for a white wine. It is. I'd say that's probably one of the shocking taste profiles that your mouth is confused about. Well, yeah, I don't think I've ever had a white wine that had this little acidic in it. Yeah. I mean, maybe it has some that you notice when you swallow it, but that might just be because it's colder. And I'm, like, swallowing cold wine. Like, that's how little, if any, acid it has, is that I can't tell if it's cold or acidic. (laughs) So I'm gonna bet it's just cold. Yeah. I'm a fan. This is a very good kind of blank canvas wine without being boring. Oh, okay. This would be really good. Oh, my God. Like, outside with a fresh-ass, like, caprese salad. I mean, that just sounds amazing alone. I'm loving this, but uh, Brittany, tell me about your wine. I'm glad you're loving it. I'm very much enjoying this. It is definitely, you taste that vanilla, and it's creamier. And I'm attributing that creaminess to this intersection of old and new world. Because normally when you think of a French Chardonnay, you're not thinking vanilla-y and buttery, specifically the buttery, because it's not fermented in wood barrels. French Chardonnays are generally fermented in steel barrels, so mm-hmm. they don't get those like buttery aromas. But it's it's like this creamy, nutty flavor with like the vanilla, but also there's some apple and pear and like maybe like a slight bit of citrus, almost like melon. Not not really citrus, but like a melon. And uh-huh. it has a really nice finish. Yeah, it's a long finish that lingers on your tongue a little bit. And you taste it for a while as it goes down. With white wines, most of the ones we drink are light or medium bodied. And so the finish is like really quick and it's not really there. This one lets you enjoy it for a little while longer. Nice. I recommend this. This is a good Chardonnay. Yeah, and I very much recommend if you're wanting to try another... A new white wine. Definitely try this one. I think it would be enjoyed by people who like prefer white wine above red, or for people who are like meh about white wine. It's it's like a, it's a crowd pleaser. What's the name of the grape again? It's a Trebbiano. Trebbiano. I'm gonna try to remember that and look for it. I'm trying to figure this wine out. It's like the Merlot of white wine. When I think of Merlot, I think of red wines that I've like. They're okay. Sometimes they're really good, but a lot of the times I gravitate away from them. Except more, I guess now I drink more Merlot. This is not like, ah, this is going to be my go-to white wine now. But if I was having people over, this would probably be the white wine I would grab to please a crowd. Really? Well, then I really need to try it. All right, well, we've got our topic, and we have our chef-inspired wine pairings to go along (laughs) with our chef-inspired topic. So, without further ado, I'm going to get into my murder. All right, tell me about your murder. So, the case I'm doing today is the murder of my young Prosecchio. 
And the sources I used, an article from The Independent by Lula May Elethro Smith, an article from the Generation Y podcast blog, an article from news.com.au by Kim Stevens, and The Guardian. Or an article from The Guardian. I didn't use the entire newspaper. You used all of it. Actually, you talked to The Guardian. Like, the yes. actual Guardian. The, the Guardian who guards the Guardian. No, the Guardian of the Galaxy. So you interviewed Chris Pratt for this. So from, I guess, not obviously from my sources, but from one of my sources, news.com.au, you might have thought, oh, an Australian murder. And yes, my case takes place in Australia. So Marcus Volk, he is this chef. He lives in Australia, but he also has another job that he keeps very much hidden from his friends and family, and that was that he was a male escort. He may have thought and seen that as his, like, big secret that he had to hide from everyone, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that he had another secret that was (laughs) quite a bit bigger, and that was that in October of 2014, he murdered his wife and cooked her body. I'm gonna think that is, it's a little bit bigger of a secret. Just, just, just a little bit. Oh my god. So his wife was Mayang Prasetcho, and she was a trans woman, and the two of them had actually just recently gotten married and moved into this new apartment. Some of the articles went into a weirdly large amount of detail on how nice and new the apartment was, and had like three paragraphs talking about like, some of the other units in the building were still getting furniture delivered. There was still painter's tape on some windows. And I'm like, is this the detail we should be going into? <laughs> All right, so they lived in a brand new building. Got it. <laughs> yeah, it was a new building. And it's not like it's that important to the story, but I don't know. I guess the author writing that really just wanted to work for Architectural ju- Digest. And they were like, Sonny, you need to write about this duty. Kill this wife. And he's like, because this was an article written in the like 1930s New York. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, probably. Um, (laughs) What year did it happen again? (laughs) 2014. Okay, so a little bit later. But isn't that how all like newspaper reporters talk? I'm just kidding. Uh, Yes. No, that that does seem like a very interesting thing to detail so much on. But there you go. Yeah. So okay, they yeah they recently had moved into this apartment, but. Recently being married, recently moving into this new place, the neighbors didn't know them much, really, at all, other than, you know, walking past them when they're going into the apartment, or whatever. How much do y'all know your neighbors, TBH? All outward appearances, they just seemed like a regular couple. But a couple nights before the murder, neighbors did report hearing them fight and, like, have a pretty loud argument, but not enough so that police were called or anything like that. So, like, raised voices, but didn't seem violent. Yeah. So, how did the two of them meet? So, Volk, he grew up in suburb... Suburbia? (laughs) Yeah. He grew up in suburban Victoria in Australia, and when he grew up, he moved to Melbourne, and he wanted to continue furthering his education and his training on being a chef. But it wasn't as easy as he thought. It was rough, and he had a lot of debt. And he found a couple other ways to make money, like being a male escort. And he met his future wife, Prasetcho, at the Pleasure Dome brothel there in Melbourne, which is such a 
such a cliche name. <laughs> yes, it is. But the brothel promotes itself as having Australia's finest selection of male escorts and uh, trans sex workers. So they work together. Uh, yeah, they work oh. together at the same brothel. Okay. I thought, you know, she was a visitor or something. But no, they work together. And she was like a very high class, expensive escort. The source I found said she charged her clients $500 per hour. I don't know how expensive that is. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> so, but apparently in Australia and Melbourne, that's high class. It's expensive. 500 bucks for anything is expensive, but... It's true. Anyway, so she was actually from Indonesia, and she moved to Australia. Um, she'd begun her transitioning in Australia, and while working as a sex worker, she would send most of the money she earned back to her mom and her two younger sisters who were still at home and she's essentially paying for her younger sisters to go to school yeah oh my gosh i'm glad she was able to give her family the that opportunity because it sounds mm -hmm. like if it wasn't for her they would not be going to school oh absolutely not and her mom and her family had no idea how she was making the money she was sending them right but she was making enough that she was living a good life. You know, she was able to pay for all of the her medical procedures while she was transitioning. She was able to support her family. So I'm like, damn. She was making like, a killing there. Ooh, no pun, fucking, in, no pun intended. Ooh, yeah. But, I mean, fucking boss-ass career woman here. Yep. She and Volk, they met at the brothel. And they started, like, you know, becoming friends, getting closer... And they moved into more private escort services after leaving the brothel, and they started traveling the world and doing their escort services. I almost said virtually, which that's not right. But I guess, I mean, traveling and when they go to a new city, posting on local escort ads and forums. I don't know, things like Craigslist For, yeah, across yeah. the world. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, they were really able to lean into being exotic you know Persecho is this beautiful indonesian woman traveling to all these countries volka is this very attractive australian guy so they're doing well for themselves yeah and also getting to travel the world i know i'm like okay hey and kind of being their own bosses you know, I, I think one of the big scary things about escorting in general is a lot of times escorts are victims of sex trafficking and might not be doing these things voluntarily. But right. I think it's really awesome to see the two of them are, you know, they're not under duress or being sex trafficked or having to, you know, report to a pimp or anything. So I'm like, get it. Yes. Like they're just completely in charge of what they're doing. Yeah. So for a while they settled in Denmark and Volka I'm I'm sorry. I I switch between calling him Volk and Volka. Um I think it's just Volk, but he went under the name of Heath XL because of course he did. I know I was Guess say. he had a big dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he advertised himself as a young, sexy Australian boy, very friendly and easygoing, discreet and professional. Um, I'm open to all kinds of people, ages and backgrounds, but if you're cool, serious, and generous, then we can be a match. Which just sounds like the most basic escort profile I can imagine. Or Tinder. <laughs> yeah, or Grinder. But 
while they were in Denmark, uh, they lived in Copenhagen. And in 2013, they got married. And I mean, it seemed like a really great relationship. Volk had asked Prosecco's mother if he could have her permission to marry her daughter. Uh, when they'd been traveling, they'd made a trip to Indonesia. So he got to like meet her family, ask her mom in person. And it it just seemed like a really, just a really sweet, normal relationship that clearly was not. I keep remembering he's going to eventually kill her. Yeah, that was kind of why I wanted to start uh, with that in like my first sentence. It's like, by the way, this ain't some meat cute shit. No. And while Prosecco's family knew of the marriage and knew of everything, Volk's family were completely in dark. He didn't tell them anything about Prosecco, about their marriage. And pretty much as far as they knew, their son was traveling the world being a chef on cruise ships. So that's why he was always traveling. That's why he like rarely came home to visit. That's it. They didn't know he was an escort. They didn't know he even had a girlfriend, let alone wife. Wow, so he's a liar. Yeah, and I cannot imagine that that would make anyone feel good, being hidden from their spouse's family. No, that's horrible. That's like, okay, are you ashamed of me because you won't even tell your family I exist? Yeah, because I'm like, even if it didn't really go into much detail on why, but even if, let's say, they were super transphobic and whatever, I mean... I would just be like, okay, family, well, this is the person I love if you don't accept them. like, Or maybe, I mean, you clearly alluded to the fact that he's ashamed of being an escort. And since that's how they met, maybe he just didn't think he could bring any of it up and introduce her. It's a shit reason, but... I mean, I guess, but how many people meet on Grindr or Tinder and are like, oh, we met through a mutual friend's friend at work? Well, she's very successful, and maybe she doesn't want to hide what she does for a living. That's true. But, I mean, either way, it's like, dude, don't hide the person you love from your family. Like, that's that's fucked up. It is. And I, I'm not saying you should do it. I'm just trying to think of reasons that this fucker would want to. But I don't know why. Yeah. I'm not trying to defend him. He's a piece of shit. I already know that. He's absolutely a piece of shit. And so, essentially... His family, they knew nothing of Prosecco, and they knew nothing of his double life. In their mind, he's their successful chef son who travels the world on, like, I don't know. Carnival. Royal Caribbean. Oh, Carnival, okay. I don't know. I don't know other cruise companies. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? The Disney Cruise. Princess. That's the one he does. So, Volca. Sorry, did you just drool all over yourself? A little bit. Um, (laughs) He'd been having some mental health issues. And he suffered from depression, he had a sleep disorder, and generalized anxiety. And I'm like, okay, get in line, bitch, me too. (laughs) And I'm like, don't use that for a reason you murder someone. No, as soon as you said mental illness, I was like, oh man, I called him a piece of shit, but he's he's got some issues. He's like, maybe schizophrenic. No, he has the same issues that like 95% of us have. I know, I'm like, depression and generalized anxiety, like, not to discount it, but... I can say it. I have those too. Yeah, no, not no. discounting it at all. Just saying it's far more common than I think a lot of people openly discuss. Yeah. His ex-girlfriend was quoted as saying that she believed he was in a really bad place because he wasn't living this life that he wanted to because he still dreamed of being this chef and like that's what he wanted to do. Right. And he got into escorting to pay his debts, pay his bills, paid a lot more, but... 
you know, he still wanted to be a chef and all. And I mean, that sucks. I get that being in a bad place career wise, still waiting for any reason that comes close as an excuse to murder, but don't think we're going to get it. I don't think we're going to get it either. So while again, outside appearances, they looked like normal everyday couple, things weren't really as it seems. Isn't that always the story? Yes, it truly is. So, they'd, again, been known to get in some fights before, but nothing like um, their last fight. That one was much different. So, this fight started about 11.30 a.m. on October 3rd, and that was the last time that Prosecha was known to be alive. Like I mentioned earlier, most investigators believe that the motive for him killing her was that she was going to reveal his double life as a male escort or that he thought she would. Not sure. But police believe that he murdered her at some point that morning during the fight because uh, the smell of her decomposing body began a few hours later. You decompose that quickly? I don't. Was it hot? No. Well, it's October in Australia, which is like... Spring. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, it's inside. They had AC. So, I I guess so. That is interesting to me. I only say that because I thought it took a little bit more than just a couple hours. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it was that next day. Like, by the evening. But even still. Yeah. I, I would assume it would take multiple days before it really became a thing. Or other people can smell it, yeah, that are outside of the apartment. Yeah, but Volk drove to the store at about 6 p.m. that next day where he was seen buying gloves, bleach, a scrubbing brush, garbage bags, wipes, and like a laundry soak tub. Oh my god, he's buying a murder kit. Yeah, he's absolutely buying a murder and cleanup kit. Yes, And then he got a taxi to the hospital there in Brisbane to treat. He had a cut on his hand. And he told the driver that he'd cut himself cutting onions. So I was just going to the hospital. But he told the people at the hospital when he was there that, you know, he'd gotten in a fight with his girlfriend. And he took a knife out of her hands during the fight. And so that's what it was there. So that tells me that it was probably a pretty deep cut. Yeah. kind of having to give that excuse but the next day october 4th at little afternoon he bought a meat cleaver and that's what he used to dismember prosecco's body and stuff it into garbage bags i don't understand why so many people result to dismembering bodies like that is so horrible and horrific that I don't understand why it's like this automatic, like, oh, I'll cut them up into tiny pieces and throw them in garbage bags. I know. I'm like, that is, murder in itself is horrifying, but to then be able to dismember someone, like, the kind of depravity and fucked upness, I I can't imagine. I can't either. Also, like, let's be real, human bones look like human bones. You can dismember someone all you want, but even a skeletonized hand or foot is gonna, it's obviously human. Maybe if you lived in an area where there were, like, I don't know, a shit ton of human-sized wild monkeys that have similar looking skeletons, but people's bones look like people's bones. So, later that day, and this is, I mean, she was murdered 
early in the morning hours on the 3rd. And this is now evening of the 4th. So, day and a half later, he decided to try and cook her body to get rid of all the evidence. Oh, so he kept her in garbage bags, but kept it in the apartment, and he was going to try to make a meal. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. So, he has a huge-ass, like, stock pot boiling on the stove. He puts pieces of her body in it, and it, I guess, bubbled over or something. It wound up short-circuiting the apartment. And so what did he do? He called an electrician to come over. Oh, yeah, come on over. Don't worry, I'm just making chili. Yeah, it Uh, doesn't smell that great. Oh, um, it's funny you say that. His excuse wasn't chili. It was uh, pork broth. Electrician gets there and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm a chef. I'm cooking pork broth. It boiled over and short-circuited everything. And the electrician is like, the apartment kind of smells weird. Oh, my God, this isn't funny, but this is like... It is, because, dude, how fucking stupid you have to be. Human does not smell like pork. Yeah. May kind of taste like it, but it doesn't smell like it. And also, this is like a very wealthy suburb. If anyone's familiar with Australia, it's Tenerife in Queensland. I don't know where that is, but it's a very, like, bougie suburb. These are brand new luxury apartments. And it's just, this is weird. And the electrician kind of comments on this weird smell, and Volk is just like, oh, it's it's just the broth. I mean, it was. Which, he wasn't lying there. Ugh. I know. I'm like, I wonder, like, what the fuck would have happened if the electrician, like, oh, no, picked up the pot to move it to get to the electrical shit near the stuff? I don't know. Ask for a taste. Oh, God. No. <laughs> but the electrician, he did his job. He fixed the problem. But when he left, he was like, nah, something's not right. (laughs) Something's not right about that. (laughs) Something about that just don't sit right with me. And so he called the, like, building manager. And then he called the police and was like, y'all, something the fuck is going on and you should check it out. I mean, honestly, it's one of those examples of, like, if you don't feel right about it, call the police. Like, you're not wasting your time. Or their time, you're doing... Wow, let me try that all over again. You are not wasting their time. It's their job to check out things that don't seem right. So mm-hmm. even if you're wrong, that's best case scenario. Like, think about it that way. If you made a mistake and everything's okay, good. Yeah. If it's ever... If you're concerned, call the police. And this smell that the electrician noticed, it was also starting to be noticed by neighbors. And it got progressively worse that some of them reported they were feeling, like, nauseated. So, I don't know if it's just the smell of, like, a person being cooked, or if it's that and a person decomposing, or what. Both. Decomposed person cooking. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. But police were called. They get there, and Volk is like, oh, yeah, sure, come in. Come into the house. Come into my humble abode. I'm making some pork broth. Yeah. They walk in. The broth is still bubbling away on the stove. So gross. And one of the police officers goes over to, like, take a closer look. And when he opens, like, the lid, there's a human foot that's just floating, bobbing up and down in the stock. Oh, my God. He wasn't even trying to hide. No. Oh my god. And this police officer thought it it, it it was a joke. Like, this is a prank. 
he said he thought he was being like secretly filmed for some kind of prank video and someone's gonna like jump out and reveal it's a gag because you know it's early october so maybe they're filming this it's gonna be a funny halloween thing literally thinking of anything that means he's not seeing what he actually is seeing Yeah, anything but the reality of what is actually happening in front of him yeah and they start looking more and more around the apartment and start realizing that they're standing in the middle of this gruesome horrific crime scene these walking across the carpet and i guess it, it must be dark carpet so that it's not immediately visible but when he steps it like squelches oh my god and he realizes it's soaked in blood okay is this like black carpet because i feel like blood would show up on any other color i mean maybe navy oh my god i don't i don't know that's why i'm like it had to be really dark carpet but do we even know what they were fighting about yet we don't wait really i thought you were gonna i thought you were gonna that was gonna be part of this just uh you'll see i don't like how that sounds uh you shouldn't so as police they're looking around they find bleach rubber gloves they find the meat cleaver and then one of them opens up the washing machine door and that's what he finds Prosecco's severed head and her severed arms in a plastic bag just in the washing machine just hanging out in there yeah I mean, I guess if you're going to hide something, that's not a terrible place to put it. I mean, I guess. My washing machine is glass on the front, and if this is a luxury (laughs) apartment in 2014, I imagine his is too. (laughs) Mine's not. I have, like, a front-loading dryer and a top-loading washer, and none of it's glass. And for me, I open it up, and I'm like, oh, shit, I have clothes in there. And then I'm like, "Uh, is laundry really important most of the time? No. Oh, see, I fully <laughs> see mine in there. And I'm like, oh, right. I have a load in the dryer from two weeks ago. And then I walk by and pour myself more wine. Or you like turn it on to, you know, like fluff it so it gets the wrinkles out and then leave it in there for another week. I'm like, oh, I just need to fluff it so I can fold it right now. Lying to myself. Sorry. Um, I was just trying to think of normal things people keep in their dryers, not their fucking wife's head. Yeah, her body. And while police are realizing what they're actually seeing and realizing this horrific murder scene, Marcus, he'd like gone to his bedroom to be like, oh, I need to like put the dogs up if there's people here, put them in their crates or something like that. He had dogs too? I saw it in one source that that was the excuse he gave to police. I don't know if he had dogs. Oh, I don't know if that was actually what he said or if that was just in this one source, but yeah so he's like gotta go put the dogs up and police like okay so he goes into his bedroom shuts the door and then jumps off the balcony and sprints away what, so i guess what? he was on like the second floor or okay something. yeah i was like okay clearly i was picturing luxury building 30 floors up and no he was able to leap over the balcony land on the street and then just run police are at the same time realizing holy shit this murder scene we have a horrific murderer right here And so they chase him, and they didn't have to chase him long, and they found him in, like, an empty garbage bin not far away, and he was dead. He had slashed his own throat and his wrists and bled out. How does one slash their own throat? I don't know how your body can let you do that, but he did. And so he killed himself in the garbage bin not far from his apartment after this. And that's kind of the end of the story. And that sucks because there are so many questions. 
Yeah. I mean, the prevailing theory is that he murdered her because he was worried she was going to tell his family he has this double life as an escort. But since he killed himself right after, most likely the motive's never actually going to be known. And I don't know how much of how they were able to gather that motive was just from, like, learning about his life. Right. And that he had this secret and being like, oh, maybe that's why. Or if, I don't know, neighbors caught random words from their argument and they were able to piece it together there. But, I mean, from almost my sources, that's the general idea of why they got into that big fight. But, yeah, the actual motive and really what happened, even how she was murdered, we don't know. I hate it. I hate that he did something so incredibly violent and then cheated everyone out of any type of answers by killing himself. And we know yeah. we know nothing. And he We know absolutely nothing. And he he like he fucking slaughtered his wife. Like Yeah. And then cooked her. Like the things that have to go through someone's mind to take these actions, I can't even mm-hmm. comprehend. No. And it's just like I mean her mom and sisters i mean just one day go from oh her husband is this you know really sweet guy who came visited us they are traveling together asked for a hand in marriage like seemed like a really great guy and they seem to be doing well she's sending us you know money to help her little sisters go to school and then is just murdered in the most brutal way imaginable but yeah that is the murder of mayang Persecchio. Yes. So, Brittany, uh, I'm going to sit back and drink more because I need it. And why don't you tell me about your chef murder, Chef Boyar Ono case? Part of me wishes I didn't eat dinner tonight. Yeah. I'm going to be totally honest. So, mine is about serial killer Joe Metheny. And the sources I used, an article from All That's Interesting by Katie Serena... An article on Vocal that's in their criminal section by Mia O'Sullivan and the Joe Metheny page on Murderpedia. Joe grew up in Essex, Maryland, where he claims as a child he was very neglected. His dad was an alcoholic who died in a car accident when he was just six years old, and his mom worked double shifts outside of the home. Joe said that he was oftentimes sent to other families, like foster arrangements by his parents to live because they had to work and like do stuff. Some aspects, though, of his childhood are pretty clustered. He and his mom say very different things about what the reality was of his growing up. Joe made false claims, even saying that his mom was dead. And oh. and his mom said that although they were somewhat poor, she worked as a barmaid, waitress, and a food truck driver. She gave her children a normal family life. And she said they never went hungry. They were never homeless. They were never put in the homes of other families, just like Joe had said they did. And so the reality of what his childhood was actually like, we, we don't know. The accounts are so differing. His mom also mentioned that he was an above-average student. He was always very polite. He was never rude. And she also recalled that he would frequently go out and ride his bike. So honestly, at this point, he sounds like just a normal kid, normal teenager, disagreements with mom, lying, but still intelligent and like riding his bike and stuff. Yeah. When he turned 18 in 1973, Joe joined the U.S. Army. 
His mom said that he served in Germany, but he claimed that he was in a tour in Vietnam and that during this time he became addicted to heroin. His mom, though, was like, I have no memory of him serving in Vietnam. And the circumstances of his service were reported as unverified in some various press reports. And direct U.S. involvement in Vietnam had ended at the time. So again, there's a lot of questions around what he really did in the military. And after he left to join the military, he pretty much cut off all contact with his mom in the first, like, anyway. Oh, so there's like... Just a big-ass question mark. Huge. In the 90s, he was known as Tiny, although he was anything but. He was yep. 6'1", he had a very large frame, and he weighed about 500 pounds. Oh. So he's like one of those guys that you call him Tiny when he is literally the polar opposite of Tiny. Well, I mean, I figured. I don't think I've literally ever heard of anyone named nicknamed Tiny and them being like, 4'7". You know, when I think of Tiny, okay, this is going to date me, but I always think of Crash Bandicoot and... T oh my god, same! Tiny. Tiny was like this big, uh. like, bad guy that was a Bandicoot as well, but he was called Tiny. Wow. You just, like, blasted me back to... All of childhood? I mean, to what, 20 years back? Yeah. Do you remember... Ew. Do you remember the one game where... I think it was like Crash Bandicoot 3 when it was the level I was a badass bitch at. It was the one where... Where she's on the tiger and the Great Wall of China? Yep. And that I was terrible at? And I could do it at top speed and get all the points. Uh-huh. No, I remember that one very well. Well, and shit, when I say 20 years back, I mean, I turned 27 in two weeks. So, yeah, that's actually not even an overguesstimate. No. Nope. That's probably pretty accurate. God, that game was so good. It was. Except the levels where you were on the jet ski. Fuck those. Those were hard, man. Those were hard. That was not a fan. You know, all of- Because at least the, the on the tiger one, I was terrible at it and you were amazing, but I wanted to keep playing and be better. The jet ski ones, I was like, no, fuck this. I don't want to play this level anymore. All of our listeners who are, like, video game pros are like, oh my god, you guys, that is like an elementary school game. And I know, but I don't care. It was my fave. That and Mario Brothers. I don't know. Or they're saying, no, we, we get it. We're with you. Games were hard then. But Tiny was not a villain on Crash Bandicoot. He was a villain in the he real world. Damn it, I knew you were going to say it. I knew you were going to say he's villain villain in real life. You went a little twang there. I, I heard it. Just just <laughs> let it happen. Joe hung out in bars, and he lived with bands of homeless men in makeshift camps in South Baltimore. I mean, like I said, he was addicted to heroin, and so he was living on the streets. He was trying to get his hits. He spent most of his money on heroin, crack, cocaine. Actually, that says crack cocaine, which... Okay, I was like... <laughs> Both? <laughs> uh, crack That's cocaine. two very different price points. That's by an organic and store brand. Well, and I'm sure he did not discriminate. But then he was also spending money on SoCo, Southern Comfort. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. I was like, Southern California? No. And Joe, throughout all of this, was actually able to hold a job as a forklift driver. He was described as... Very intelligent, well-spoken, and well-mannered. That is one of the last people I would want to be suffering from drug and alcohol addiction. 
is a heavy machine operator. I know. So he's doing that, working at a lumber factory, and he still had an attitude. He had a temper. He was one of those people that could quickly fly off the handle. And this really started back in July of 1994. You know, one thing I just gotta say, and I know the answer to it. We all know the answer. But why the fuck do all these fucking men we talk about, and then men in general, get such a pass for like, you know, oh, they have a temper. It's just like uh, part of their personality. And it's just something that everyone accepts. Like, it's okay for someone to randomly go into rages. It's not. No, it's not. Toxic masculinity. and But a woman being like, um, excuse me, too loudly it makes her a bitch, but... Preach. I mean, it's it's pretty fucked up, but Joe has a temper and people are, that's just Joe. I hate it. Yeah. So in July 1994, he's working overtime one night. He's had a long day. He gets off and he goes home. He opens the door, turns on the light, and he noticed that nothing was there. So what I didn't mention is Joe had gotten some things together. He was no longer living on the street. He was married and he had a son, but his wife had taken everything including his son, who was six years old, and she left. Oh. And for Joe, her leaving was not the problem. It was that she took his son. He hated his wife. He called her a cracked addict, and he did not love her. He didn't give a shit about her. And he said he would have paid to get her out of his life. But she took his son He said all she had to do was to take his son to his mother's house and she could do whatever the fuck she wanted. But he was furious that she took his son. I mean, if he's treating her like that and that much of a gigantic asshole to her, yeah, I would probably also be like, I'm getting the kid out of this situation. Yeah, but it's not like she took the kid to a better situation. So That's that's true. Joe flew into an absolute rage. Again, like I said, he had a temper and this set it off pretty much indefinitely. Well, I mean, also your kid being basically kidnapped by their other parent. This I can understand going into a rage at least. So after about six months, Joe found out that, so his wife went to live with this guy that she'd been hooking up with. They were super heavy into drugs. They ended up getting Mm -hmm. caught And his son was taken by social services. Joe, though, had a past criminal record. So he knew that he had absolutely no chance to get his son back. So instead, he was out for revenge. Because in his mind, if she hadn't have taken him, like, again, and I go back to what he said about, like, all she had to do was take him to my mom's instead of just taking him completely. So he ends up, the son ends up in foster homes, and Joe's not in a position to get him back. So Joe was out for revenge. He spent his days looking for the two of them, and this was his ex or his wife and the her like lover or whatever. So he mm-hmm. he was looking for him. He would check the halfway houses. He even one day checked under a bridge where he knew that his wife used to go to do some drugs. Under the bridge, though, he didn't find his wife, but he did find two thirty-three-year-old homeless men, Randy Piker and Randall Brewer, and he believed that these two men did drugs with his wife. When he questioned them, they gave no indication that they knew where his wife and son were, and so he killed both of both of them with an axe. Oh my! With an? Would you just have an axe on him? Probably brought it with him. 
According to Joe, he then lured two sex workers down under the same bridge and killed them as well. And after he had killed the two women, he noticed that there was a fisherman nearby and was like, oh shit, he may have just seen what I did. Well, I gotta kill him too. So just in case, he did. He killed him. So these five murders happened within the span of like seven hours or less. And as soon as Joe realized what he had done, he started to panic a little bit. He starts chopping up the bodies and tossing them into the river, weighing them down with rocks to hide the evidence. And he walked away. Then later in 1994, he murdered Kathy Ann Magaziner, who was a 39-year-old sex worker, and he strangled her. He then buried her body in a very shallow grave on the side of a pallet factory, like where he was working. So like at work, that's where he buried her. The body ended up being there for over two years before it was discovered, by the way. And six months after he killed her, he actually went back, dug up her skeleton, took her head, put it in a box, and threw it in the trash. So maybe he was trying to, like, help her not be identified by, like, dental records. I I don't know. Well, this is, like, the 90s, right? 94. Oh, okay. So dental records, like, DNA is there, but it's not as prevalent Dental records have always yeah. been a thing. That's my guess. I didn't find that in my research. But when he took the head, I'm like, when you do that, well, you're trying to help the body not be identified. Yeah. And if she's been buried that long, I mean, her she's skeletonized enough that you wouldn't be able to, like, fingerprint her and stuff. So Right. And August 2nd, 1995, the bodies of Piker and Brewer were discovered. And these were the first two homeless men that he had murdered, but he didn't put their bodies in the river. He he just kind of left them around uh, dismembered. I think maybe there was like a mattress under there or something. But anyway, they were discovered and Joe spent a year and a half in the county jail awaiting trial. However, at trial, he was acquitted because a member of the jury was unconvinced that Joe was the one that killed Brewer and Piker. So the fact that Joe was a little bit quicker in, like, he dismembered and semi-hid the bodies, there really was no physical evidence that he himself had killed the two men. And so he was acquitted and released. Yeah. So as soon as Joe was released, he immediately resumed his quest to find his wife and child. Because while, yes, his son was taken by social services, he's hoping maybe, like, he can get him somehow. And by this time... It's July 1996, and again, like, he's free, there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. But he had been in jail for, you said, like, a year and five months? Yeah. Okay. So, although he had spent, like, a year and a half awaiting trial, his time in jail had clearly done nothing to slow him down. Joe was still seeking revenge and on the move. So, shortly after he was released, he murdered two more sex workers, but this time... He he didn't he didn't want to bury them. He didn't want to dismember them and like throw them in a river. He had other ideas of how to dispose of these bodies. So he killed the women, butchered their bodies, and cut up the meat, which I sorry, that's a really Ugh. horrible word, but you'll understand why I'm referring it to as that. Oh no. And he put it in some Tupperware and then put them in the freezer. I know I chose the topic and there was a part of my brain that was like this case doesn't really sound like a chef murder yet and then i was just hoping that you had not followed the topic oh no i followed the topic oh well i'm also this is the rest of my wine 
take a nice long sip there before I continue. So Joe buried the rest of their remains that he hadn't saved in the Tupperware in some pretty shallow graves in the woods behind his company, again, where he worked. And then when he was back at home, he took the flesh from the sex workers and with a mixture of pork and beef, he started to form different little patties. So over the next several weeks, he would sell these patties out of a small barbecue stand that he opened up on the side of the road in Maryland. And he stated that the human body, it tasted very similar to pork. And if you mix it, you know, with pork and beef, you, know, you really can't taste the difference. And so for weeks, truckers and townies, they would all go to his burger stand and get some barbecue, get some burgers, and they were unknowingly consuming human flesh, which essentially made them become living, like, hiding spots for the bodies of Joe's victims. Oh my god, I... So, (laughs) listeners, I have just been sitting here, like hands to my head with what the fuck face for uh, the past paragraph uh britney's been speaking oh my god can you just imagine how many uh, no. hundreds or maybe thousands of people eight people went to his stand yeah and all of those people can you imagine watching the news or just Ugh. i don't know maybe getting a call from the police or whatever and realizing oh my god Especially if you were someone who was like, you'd gone there, gotten a burger, and you were like, oh, that was a good burger. Let me tell my friends and send them to this place and feel like you're the the person who, I don't know, basically sent all your friends to eat human. Oh my god. I know. It's so beyond horrifying. And uh, apologies, I'm going to get a little bit graphic here for a second. But when you think of what meat looks like after it's been through a meat grinder... You can't really tell what it is. It's all just red. You know, I had put some ground beef in my fridge earlier that I was going to cook after the (laughs) recording. And I'm just, I'm going to put that back in the freezer because that's not happening tonight. Do you want to be a vegetarian for the next week? Because I kind of do. Been there, done that, can do it again. I know. Joe's a fucking monster. And he was finally caught in 1996. So later that same year. Oh, good. And it was when one of his would-be victims managed to escape and went to the police. So it turned out he was attacking this woman, and he turned around for just a split second, and she ran out the door. There was, like, this eight-foot chain-link fence with barbed wire at the top. And, again, he, like, lived near his company, and so this is where a lot of this is taking place. And next to this chain link fence, there's like a stack of wooden pallets that's about 10 feet high. So this woman scales the pallets, jumps the fence, and she runs to the main road, flags down this man in a pickup truck, and she's like, please take me to a phone. I need to call the police. And so she goes to a nearby gas station with this guy. They called the cops. And this would-be victim, her name was Rita Kemper. And she was someone that Joe had previously called a friend. Like, they did drugs together, they hung out, and Rita was about to be his next victim. I love Rita. She's my favorite person of this episode. I mean, she scaled Um, 10 feet of pallets, which, that's a lot of pallets, and pallets are not, like, super stable. Just a big stack of pallets? That could fall over. They're not heavy. Oh, yeah. There's no... The only way you could scale that is sheer panic and... Speed. Fuck it, if I don't, I'll die. Uh, yeah. And, oh my god, I love her. Also, 
did he just forget about finding his son? Because his first murders were about finding his son or, like, getting revenge for that. Did he do those and was like, ooh, you know what? Actually, put a pin in that. I'm a fan of murdering and cooking people. I think you're exactly right. His murders shifted from being about revenge to being just, like, something that he did for fun and enjoyed doing. Jesus. So when police arrested Joe in December 1996, they definitely expected him to put up a fight. Like I said, Joe had a temper. Joe was a big guy. I mean, if he's like 6'4", 500 pounds, yeah. But what they did not expect was a detailed and upfront confession. I actually read Joe's confession, and it's pretty crazy. Like, he wrote a letter, and he described to police how he driven by this very insatiable need for revenge, would viciously rape, murder, and dismember drug-addicted sex workers and homeless people while he was on this quest to find his runaway wife and son. From his confession letter, I do want to read his admission to how many people he did murder. I wish you wouldn't. Joe says, I killed seven people, three men and four women, Two men I chopped up with an axe under a bridge in South Baltimore. I was found not guilty for them because they couldn't prove I did it. Under that same bridge, I also killed two women and one man who was fishing, who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Side note, that's fucking sick. I weighed their bodies down and put them in that river. I showed the police where I put them about three years later, but they couldn't find them, so they could not charge me for them. My murder rampage started out as a revenge, but ended up as a passion for the taste of blood and the overwhelming sense of power one gets for taking the life of another. Oh shit, I called it. Yeah. So in other articles that I read, he actually also admitted at one point to murdering 10 people. But this is one of those situations where did he kill as many as he said? Did he kill more? Did he like, we really don't know. Yeah. Seven just feels too low. For how comfortable he seemed killing by the end of it. And plus, if his first spree was five people, essentially in a few hour span, I can't imagine that by the end of, you know, when he got out of jail, he only killed two other people. I can't believe that either. But obviously for the police, it was not the murdering and dismembering that was the most shocking thing. But it was when he learned how Joe was disposing of the bodies. When they found out that Joe was putting human flesh into his barbecue stand, it had been about two years. Oh my god. So upon his arrest, Joe told police that no one had ever complained about the meat tasting funny. He said no one noticed that his burgers had a little something extra in them, as he said. Oh my god. So again, seven people, ten people... I'm thinking Joe killed a lot more than that. Yeah. Because also if he's adding people to burgers, and I mean, enough people that it's over the course of two years, that's not two people's worth of meat. That has to be more than that. And that's saying that every person from then on that he killed, he took them back and cooked them. I know. Joe did not show any type of remorse for what he had done, except for there was one thing. He said... The only thing I feel bad about in any of this is I didn't get to murder the two motherfuckers I was really after. And that's my ex-old lady and the bastard she got hooked up with. And then he followed that in his letter. 
to say one of the creepiest fucking things ever that I'm going to share with you today. Wish you wouldn't. So the next time you're riding down the road and you happen to see an open pit beef stand that you've never seen before, make sure you think about this story before you take a bite of that sandwich. Like I said, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Oh my god. So eventually, Joe was found guilty and sentenced to death. And I believe he was only found guilty in like two murders, which were a couple of the bodies they could actually find and attribute to him. His death sentence, though, was overturned in 2000 and changed to two life sentences because, yeah, just the death penalty being abolished. And then in 2017, he was found in his prison cell completely unresponsive and he was dead. He was a monster. He showed no type of remorse. He showed no care for any type of rehabilitation. And honestly... It's one of those things where, like, he so quickly admitted to what he did that you could tell he literally just didn't give a fuck about anything. Whether that meant killing someone, whether that meant being in prison, whatever it was, Joe just didn't give a fuck. Well, and holy shit, if he had been able to, you know, find his son or was able to, like, you know, have custody over his son and all that shit, I'm like, oh my god, he would have just straight up tried to raise an apprentice in this. Probably. I don't like and thinking of those possibilities. No, but, and if his son's six or seven or whatever, and then, like, grows up with this is all they know, well, we could have had a fucking murder family. Like, oh my god. I hate that I read about this, because earlier today, I really wanted Whataburger. Now, I just want a big pile of spinach. I mean, you literally ruined my dinner that's... <laughs> I was going to make that's in the fridge. But hey, dude, no, not- you picked this topic. Don't put it on me. Yeah, I know. But again, like I mentioned earlier, when I said chef murders, I naively, way too naively, I, I recognize and admit, was not thinking cannibalism. I know. And honestly, that's a huge miss on your part because Listen, chef murders pretty much equal some form of cannibalism, or at least cook uh, cooking people. I was going on the mindset of chefs who work with a shit ton of knives and, like, crazy, you know, cooking instruments all look like murder weapons. Totally Listen, I true. just want Ratatouille to be a true crime movie, is all I'm saying. <laughs> That's about a rat. Who murders. It's not. With the big knife that he can't even pick up because he's a rat. Yeah. Oh, are we supposed to call yeah, him a mouse? Restaurant. No, it's Ratatouille. No, he's a rat. He's a, it's... He's a fucking big ass okay, rat. Okay, well, I mean, he's a rat, but Ratatouille is a dish. Yeah, okay. You want to jump into postmortem on this one because it's like, what's worse, cooking people or feeding people to people? Yeah, Um. I was actually thinking, I don't think we need to jump into postmortem. I mean, my case was horrifying and Prosecco in no way deserved to be murdered. Her husband is a fucking monster who murdered her for literally no fucking reason. And even if there was a reason, we're not going to know because he killed himself afterwards. Even if there was uh, a reason, it's not a good reason. Well, true. There never is a good reason. But all of the horrifying, fucked up, grotesque parts of my case are not only mirrored in yours, they're amplified. The the brutality of the murder, you just had a shit ton more people, and axes, and all that shit. The grotesqueness of cooking your wife, yours had not only cooking people, serving them 
to countless unknowing yeah. guests, restaurateurs, whatever you call them. The fucked upness of my guy clearly not really showing remorse. Like, yes, he killed himself, but I'm not of the opinion that it was of remorse or guilt. I think it was a, oh, fuck, I was caught. Exactly. I agree. Um, yours had him not only having no remorse, but being like, yeah, I did it. Do you want to know how? And do you want me to tell you how fucked up it is? I'm going to actually say this directly to all the people who ate my burgers. Think about what you ate. You liked it. You thought that burger was special. Think what was in it. And by that, I mean, who was in it. Yeah. So I I think right then and there, you, your case was the most intense of this episode and of one that we have had in a long time. I'm going to agree with you. And honestly, your impression there of Joe sharing his uh, activities with the world is so fucking spot on. Because like I said, Joe is a monster. Joe is a sick individual. And he admittedly said so. So yes, I will agree. Mine is the most intense. Marcus was also a monster, a different kind of monster. He was the kind of monster who was ashamed and decided to be violent because of he he was ashamed of his his life and Joe was just a monster and enjoyed all the shit he was doing. Joe stopped killing for revenge and started killing cuz he was having a good fucking time. So, I'll let you pick the topic again. Please don't pick this I'm one. I'm going to pick a different <laughs> one. I'm going to pick a very different topic. I don't know. Maybe the topic I'll pick is like just kidding, this episode we're not doing murders, we're doing stories of people who dedicated their lives to helping others. True crime, though. In this episode of Blood and Wine, the true crime we're doing is Robin Hood crimes, where people do good things that's illegal, but it's fine. In today's episode of Blood and Wine, we're reading Harriet the Spy, which, by the way, is so obsessed with us. You know she grew up to be a murderer. No, she grew up to be a badass detective. Don't do that. All right. Yeah, I will pick the topic next episode. Oh, and next week, that is our official, we've been doing this two years. Can you believe it? Two years? No, I literally cannot believe it, because it simultaneously feels like we've been doing this forever, and it feels like we started months ago. I agree completely, because I was going to say, sometimes it feels like this has been life for a long time, and other times Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I have a podcast, that's like a thing I do, and it's new. It's not new anymore. We're old news, dude. I'm like, oh, we just started a podcast. No, we didn't. We didn't just start anything. But yeah, so. I've gotten to the point to where people forget I do it because I've done it so long that they're like, oh, yeah, you have a podcast, right? I'm like, yeah, and you clearly don't listen. (laughs) (laughs) True. But yeah, I guess since I'm picking the topic for our anniversary episode, I'm not going to do light, happy murders. I'm going to say, fuck it, fuck our psyche, and I'm going to bring the biggest guns I can think of. Just dive in with those machetes. No, I meant machine gun. I said machete. There you go. You know what? All of it works. All of it works. All of it works, unfortunately. All right. Well, let us know if y'all enjoyed this episode. I know it was a lot. I am glad I still have a little bit of wine left. Definitely wish I had more. But if y'all enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. Let us know what you enjoyed. We absolutely love hearing from y'all's words, what y'all say, everything. It's pretty much the highlight when we see that we have a new review, getting to read what y'all think. So yeah, do it. 
I'm also glad I have enough wine because we're about to record a murder mini, so we are not done. This is not where our night ends. But while you are at it, check us out on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Pop on over, comment on some photos, see our beautiful faces, and show us the love, and we'll show you love back because literally I try to comment back to everyone and message everyone back. That's something that's really important to me because I don't know about you, but I hate it when I message someone on Instagram or or anything, whether it's I mean, a friend or uh, like a podcast or a brand. I like being responded to. So just know that that's important to us and we'll get back to you. And with that, this is Blooded Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. (laughs) Bye. (laughs)